You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Caitlin, thank you. I think that is a Guinness Book record for uh, passages read on Sunday morning in worship, so great job. So this past Wednesday at Life Group, we had lively discussion. We're still working through our training, the three circles, how to turn everyday conversation into gospel conversation. And so we're on session four, and our topic was giving an invitation, how to invite people to put their faith and trust in Christ. Well, in our group, that created quite um, a bit of lively interaction. And it really raised two questions uh, from the training and from our passage today. And question number one is this, human responsibility. And the real question is, when we look at sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, what is the role you and I have as believers in sharing the gospel? What's our responsibility? And there's debate on this, folks. There's not congruence as to... uh, the part we play, and so we'll unpack that today. The second question is this, divine sovereignty. And the question there is, what role does God play in the salvation of people? And so one of the passages that came up from uh, Pastor Mark Woywood, uh, he thinks very deeply about things, and he was quite a contributor this past Wednesday. He brought up 1 Corinthians 3, and I want to highlight that because I think it's one of the passages that highlights the balance between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. So it's on the screen. Paul brings clarity. He says, I planted, and he's talking about preaching the gospel. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So examine that verse just for a moment. Think about the balance here. There is human responsibility, right? Paul says, I participated in this agrarian metaphor of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I planted seeds of the gospel in the soil of people's hearts beautiful picture. Then his colleague, Apollos, metaphorically comes by, waters the seed that's in the soil. But what happens supernaturally? Divine sovereignty. God does the miracle. He brings a harvest. He transforms a life. And that's the beautiful picture. Now, Jesus uh, highlights this balance too, this partnership. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read this, and this goes all the way back to the beginning. Jesus said this to his disciples and us, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. Notice, that's divine sovereignty. God initiates. He's the one empowering believers, but look at what it says next, and you will be my witnesses. That's a promise. So God initiates, he empowers us, and then we are commanded, we are promised to be a witness of the good news. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And friends, that's the thesis of the book of Acts. We started in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came, and the gospel is now advancing to the ends of the earth, which is Rome. Now, look what happens. Talk about human responsibility. So, Paul is on mission, right? 
He has a divine appointment in Caesarea, and for two years, he's in prison. But in his imprisonment, what does God do? He opens the doors to preach the gospel to two governors, Felix and Festus, and to one king, King Agrippa. This is the grandson of King Herod the Great. It's quite remarkable how much ministry went to the Herod dynasty in Israel. But notice what uh, Herod perceives as Paul's engaging, sharing his story. This is a remarkable statement. Then Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? Think about it. This is human responsibility. Paul's on mission, and the king himself is reflecting and saying, you're trying to persuade me. You want me to say yes to the gospel, to commit my life to Jesus Christ. And look at Paul's response. He says, I wish before God, it's really a prayer. I wish before God, replied Paul, that whether easily or with difficulty, not only you but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. So Paul's heart, his prayer, his passion was for Agrippa and everyone there. And folks, there were dignitaries there. This was pomp and ceremony. This was the palace that King Herod the Great built in Caesarea. There's a lot of dignitaries, and he had the privilege to preach Christ, to share his testimony, and to persuade them to come to Jesus Christ. That's the human responsibility. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you're going to see this in Paul's preaching seven times. The word persuade is used for Paul's preaching. In other words, he's trying to persuade people to cross the line of faith, to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's glorious light through Jesus Christ. He was persuading. That's human responsibility. What is persuasion? Biblical persuasion is uh, a communication technique to help people think clearly about truth. And boy, if there's ever a day that we need that, it's today. To persuade people to change their mind, to go from darkness to light, that the eyes of their heart would be open, and when they say yes, they start living according to God's plan and God's will. Let me show you a few case scenarios of Paul's ministry. We've already seen some of this as he persuaded people. Let me take you to Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, verse 4. You don't need to turn there. It's on the screen. So he's in Thessalonica, he's preaching the gospel, second missionary journey. Notice this, it says, then some of them, and this is the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. Think about it, three groups in Thessalonica are persuaded. First Jews, God-fearing Greeks, and then leading women. Friends, that's remarkable. He had a ministry of persuasion. He is helping people cross the line of faith to think right about truth. That continues, Acts 18.4. In Corinth, here's what we read. He reasoned in the synagogue, notice, every Sabbath and tried to persuade who? Both Jews and Greeks. Paul never forgot his countrymen. As hard as they were on him, wanting him dead, as we've seen in this passage again. I mean, can you imagine the journey of faith this guy was on? But he pressed forward. Why? He had a calling before God. He was persuaded that it was true, so he purposed to persuade others. 
Now, the book of Acts closes remarkably, and we'll see this in a few weeks. Acts 28, look what it says. Paul now is in Rome. He's under house arrest. He has another two years before he is released and then does ministry potentially in Spain. But here's what it says. After arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging, meaning the Jews, from dawn to dusk. How do you like Paul's preaching? You know what that means? From 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Kind of weird hours. You're supposed to be sleeping. From dawn, wait, is that right? Oh, it's the other way around. Aha, see if you're listening this morning. You, did you guys know that I screwed up? Okay, good, good, good. I'm glad I screwed up. It's good to screw up. All right, here we go. So from dawn to dusk, from morning to evening, he preaches, right? Notice what he's doing. He's expounded and witnessed about the kingdom of God. Notice this next phrase, folks. Don't miss it because it'll, it'll encourage you. We have a privileged responsibility. Notice what he did. He tried to persuade them concerning Jesus, but notice his source. Don't miss this. This is a constant theme in the Bible. From both the law of Moses, Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is the Torah, and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. So that is the encouragement this morning. We have a privileged responsibility. We plant seeds of the gospel. We water seeds of the gospel. But God gives that miraculous increase. He's the one who brings that born-againness, that, that regeneration by his spirit and his word. And it's beautiful. And so, if you have your Connect card, our focus this morning is human responsibility. So let me share with you the blessing. The blessing is this. Because of the pattern in the book of Acts, every believer should persuade others to trust Christ. Yes, we're called to persuade. We're called to encourage. We're called to be truth tellers, to be gospelizers. And persuasion's a beautiful word, folks. It's just helping people to think clearly about truth. That's all it is. And boy, again, do we need clarity on truth. And so I want to highlight five patterns that just jump off the pages of Scripture from this narrative. Number one, being obedient. And truly, this is where it begins in our uh, persuasion motif. Look what Paul says. In Acts 26, 19 through 20, he's given his testimony. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Instead, I preached to those where? In Damascus first. Then in Jerusalem, in all the region of Judea, then to the Gentiles, that what should they do? Repent of their sins and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. So Paul says, I wasn't disobedient. People need truth. They need to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They need to know Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And so I was obedient to the call. Look at what he says in Acts 26, 22. To this very day, I've obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify, and this is a beautiful statement, to both small and great. Think about it. It's Acts 16. Paul's in Philippi, second missionary journey, and he bumps into a demon-possessed slave girl. Remember her? She's a young gal. In, in the world's eyes, she's just nothing. She's just a, a tool in her master's hands, right? She was a soothsayer. We, we talked about that. We covered that. And so as the world looks very small, 
meaningless, worthless, as Paul looked, very valuable in God's eyes. And what happens to this demon-possessed gal? She gets transformed by the glorious gospel. And now, think about great, he's speaking to two governors, Felix and Festus, and one king, grandson of Herod the Great, and then he's going to Rome to speak to the praetorian guard, the elite leaders in Rome. Paul didn't care if it was small or great. You know what he cared about? Sharing the good news, being obedient. And so over the past year or two, we've talked about who's your one. We've talked about the three circles training, turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations. Why did the vision team, vision proper team, put that forward? Because we want to be obedient, folks. This isn't just for Paul. This isn't just for the apostles. This is for all of us. What a privilege to live like that. And so we're in session four. We're still plowing through the material. We're still growing and learning. I hope uh, it's, a, it's a tool, a resource that, that equips you to live in obedience to sharing the good news. And so pattern number two, being biblical. This truly inspires me. Again, I mentioned there's a pattern in Scripture, but track with me. Look at verses 6 through 8. Paul says this, And now I stand on trial for what? For the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him day and night. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Three times in that passage, Paul refers to hope, and then he closes out the passage asking this question. Why is it considered incredible that there is a resurrection from the grave? And so, what's the hope? Look at verses 22 and 23. To this very day, I've obtained help that comes from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing else than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. And so, friends, the hope that we're talking about here, the hope that Paul often got in trouble uh, for, was the hope of the resurrection from the grave. Now, notice from the passage, Jesus is the first to rise from the grave. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says, listen, just as Christ was risen, so we too will have that privilege one day to be raised immortal. Friends, that's a hopeful reality, that we're just not here 70, 80 years and, and just worm food when we die. We have something absolutely to look forward to. It's the bodily resurrection of, of, uh, from the grave. Now, let me show you that for, um, from a passage in, 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 the, in Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a familiar passage, but sometimes we, we miss this. What was happening is there was a bunch of misinformation about the bodily resurrection. Why? The Greek world just didn't think in terms of the value of the body. They look at the body as kind of non-significant, non-important. The Christian worldview is just the opposite. You're going to be raised immortal someday. You're going to have a new body, be glorified body, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So track with me from 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's what Paul says. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, 
so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Paul's talking about hope here. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And, and notice the phrase fallen asleep. Twice it's used here. Christians don't die. We fall asleep. We rest and wait for what? The resurrection, which is to come through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from our Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And notice the final phrase here. Therefore do what? Encourage one another with these words. Friends, what's the encouragement? There's hope. There's heaven, there's eternity. John chapter four, when Jesus is ready to leave his disciples, they are discouraged. And yet he comes to them and he says, hey guys, don't be discouraged. Why? In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you and I'll come back to receive you where I am and you will be with me forevermore. Friends, that's heaven, Boy, what a, what a gift to realize that. And so I would like to suggest the cornerstone of the entire New Testament is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And for those who believe in him, we will follow suit. We will be raised. And if you die before that day comes, you just fall asleep, the resurrection's to come. Now, friends, we live in a broken world. We had a hoopla event yesterday with our life group. We went out and... Uh, I guess we just shot guns, right? So our life group over at the Warwood property, you're wondering what this is? Anybody wondering? It was a kickback from a 243. Got a little too close, boink. I was like, yeah, okay. We'll just stick with pistols. So we just had a hoopla, dinner, hung out for four hours. What a blast. First thing on the way home, we get a message. Buffalo, New York, where we grew up, very neighborhood we grew up, an 18-year-old took the lives of 10 individuals at a shopping plaza. Friends, I hope we're not callous to the pain and brokenness of this world. I know we get so much of it. The war in Ukraine, when we were in Israel, Tel Aviv, just down the road from us, a mullah put out a social media, grab your knives, grab your axes, and take some lives. They took three, and it became high alert. It's a broken world in which we live, and people need hope. Where do we find hope? Where do we go today? Folks, we don't go to short-term fixes. We go to the eternal God who gave his life and raised from the grave and said, in Christ, that's your future, that's your hope. There's resurrection. And we can hang our hat on that. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's suffering. But boy, there's a future and it's called heaven. If you're familiar with Revelation 21, God someday is gonna create a new heaven and new earth, right? And it says this, the dwelling of God will be with man. There will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more mourning. This is an intimate relationship, God with us in fellowship for all eternity. And he's gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
That's the hope of the resurrection. Hang your hat on that. Share that with people. Paul says, encourage one another with this hope, with this reality. Pattern number three, being reasonable. And I love what Paul does here. Paul's an emotional guy. You see that in his writings. But look at verse 24. Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. Now, folks, please hear me. This is not a polite statement by Festus. The governor is suggesting that Paul is nuts and that his theological pedigree, his PhD, is driving him crazy. But how does Paul respond? Notice how he responds. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters. It is to him I am actually speaking boldly. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his notice, since this was not done in a corner. So, two guys. You got Festus. Who is he? He's pagan. He's Roman. A Gentile. He has no idea of what God is doing in Israel. On the contrary, Agrippa, who is he? At eight years old, we anticipate this is when Jesus Christ gave his life, rose from the grave. He is a boy at the time. So he grew up watching the church explode where? In Israel. Israel is a small country, guys. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in Caesarea. He saw for 30 years the gospel advance, and what Paul does is he leans on that reality. He says, okay, Festus, you don't get it because you don't understand. You're from a different world, Rome. Agrippa gets it. Why? He grew up in this. He saw Christianity flourish. 3,000, 5,000 come to faith in Christ, get baptized, and the gospel advance. And so he appeals to Agrippa's reasonableness. He appeals to the facts because the facts are your friends. He says, no, I am communicating to you truth because I experienced this firsthand. And so that's a remarkable thing. So what Paul does is he tries to jockey the king's memory. I'm convinced you're aware because these things were very public. And so if you were living in the first century, even Paul uses the argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, many people alive today still can testify to the resurrection. He appealed to eyewitness testimonies. And friends, that's vitally important. So I hope you're encouraged to know that as important as feelings are, the facts will always trump the feelings. Paul says this is true this is reasonable. This is rational. It does make sense, although it truly is a mystery. In the Old Testament, God says through Isaiah to Israel, he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. In other words, God is a thinking God. Let us sit down and talk through this. Let us process these things. Sometimes I'm asked, why do you long to go to Israel or take educational tours? And, you know, I studied there in 1987, finished off my undergrad. This is our uh, third trip going back. Why? Here's why, folks. It's very clear to me. When you go to Israel, you see it firsthand. 
The church is alive there. Forty churches are in a small uh, city called the old city of Jerusalem. Forty. One goes back 1,700 years. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Go five miles down the road south to Bethlehem. There's another church, 1,700 years old. It goes back to uh, Christ's birth where they commemorated it. All throughout Israel, there are sacred pilgrim sites that commemorate the Bible. Synagogues in Capernaum and Magdala. Everywhere you go, this book comes alive. It's fact, it's history, it's archaeology, and they keep discovering. So here's the encouragement. Think through the beauty of how history and archaeology and culture and all of those things testify to the reality of Scripture. One place we always go to in Jerusalem is a place called the uh, Israeli Museum. And believe it or not, they dedicated a whole wing to what's called the Jesus Corner. And so, basically, the Gospels explode in the Jesus Quarter, but there's two artifacts that Jewish uh, archaeologists say are unprecedented. One comes from Caesarea. It is the uh, stone where Pontius Pilate, who tried Jesus, his name is inscribed there, it's in the museum, and another comes from uh, an ossuary, which is basically a casket from the ancient world where we discovered Caiaphas's tomb, and it's got Caiaphas's name on the ossuary. Two artifacts, Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas, both men were involved in one thing, the trial of Jesus Christ. You know what the Jewish archaeologists say? Unprecedented, unprecedented in finds. That's why it's helpful to see, to taste, to experience, and tap into the reality of the facts, because facts are our friends, as Paul says. Now, two more points. Pattern number four, being personal. I'm only going to highlight verse eight because we read the passage But look what Paul says here. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I beg you, I plead with you. Why? I have a heart for you. I'm concerned for your spiritual, eternal destiny. Please listen to me. And then what does he do? He starts from his youth. And then he looks at his spiritual pedigree. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was trained under Gamaliel. Then he says, I oppose Christians just like you're opposing me now. Not only did I oppose them, I killed them. I put them to death. Paul says, I hated Christ and I hated Christians. But my life was transformed. Why? I experienced Christ. I heard his voice. I had a conversation with him. I met the risen Savior and it changed everything. This gets very personal. Now, is Paul feeling this? There's no doubt he's feeling it. How could you have an experience like that on the Damascus Road without feeling it? He's feeling it deeply. And so we talk about this a lot at West Wind in the Three Circles training and our journey experience. We talk about the power of testimony. Let me highlight a verse that's real important, John 4, 39, a Samaritan woman. Now, many Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus. Why? Because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. The woman has an experience, an encounter with Christ. She gets a God story. She goes back to her people, shares her story, and people believe the power of story, the power of testimony. Now, again, this is a uh, compilation of things. It's not just our story, but our story really matters. One of the great joys that we had on our trip to Israel is... uh, 
going to the baptism site of John the Baptist and where Jesus was baptized. This is the actual site. It's called uh, Bethabara, uh, beyond the crossing. It's where Joshua brought the nation of Israel across the Jordan. It's where Elijah was taken up into a whirlwind. John the Baptist had his ministry there. So this cute little gal right here, that's mom. So mom got baptized, and Kathy Smith was with us from Westwind. And what happened to mom? When I was 19, God changed my life through Jesus Christ. And two months later, I was baptized in a church very similar to this. Mom came to the baptism. That day, she heard my testimony, my story. Mom walked forward, gave her life to Christ. Fast forward 43 years now, uh, mom's getting baptized in the Jordan River, and what a joy it was. But it all began 43 years ago with a story, her son's story. And that was one of the most intimate moments in my faith journey, and what a joy to celebrate. So please be encouraged. We all have a story here. And it doesn't have to be, you know, street and drugs and all this mess. It can be I grew up in a godly home. I had God-honoring parents. I stayed the course, and my story is just God rescued me from early on. That's a great story. Finally, pattern number five, being prayerful. And we'll close with this. Verse 29, Paul says, I wish before God that whether easily or with Difficulty, not only you, but all who listen to me today might become as I am, except for these chains. And so, what's Paul's heart? His heart is for the salvation of souls. And we can pray for people, we can intercede. And, friends, how important this is in this human responsibility, asking God to open doors, open hearts. Let me show you a verse from 1 Timothy 2 as we close here. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a, that's a pretty remarkable statement. Who desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So let's be prayerful. Let's intercede. Let God break our hearts for people who don't yet know him. One of the things we talked about Wednesday is people far from God. I was far from God. My mom was really far from God, and God worked. Seeds were planted. They got watered, and God gave the harvest. May it be so. I want to invite our worship team to come forward. Let me close in prayer. We'll sing, and then we have some elder candidates who are going to share their story. Let's pray together. Father, how remarkable to know that we have a privileged part in sharing the gospel and seeing your kingdom come. So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we'll do our part, that we'll be compassionate enough, bold enough, and, Father, reasonable. So, open doors, Lord. Create divine appointments. Do what you did in our lives like the, the Samaritan woman. And she shared her story. People said, yes. They crossed the line of faith. Help Paul's life, Father, who sacrificed so much, who gave so much to inspire us to keep on. 
And so we thank you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.